part 91, part two. We've got some more to look at coming right up. So strap in and let's get into it. G'day everyone, welcome to episode 18 of Flight Training Australia podcast. The podcast is all about flight training in Australia and beyond. I'm your host Trent Robinson, thank you so much for joining me. For more episodes you may have missed, you can go to www.flighttrainingaustralia.com.au for a list of all the podcast servers available or scroll through the app that you're listening to right now. Please remember to subscribe so you do get those alerts to all the new content and please keep those reviews coming. Big shout out to Create Web, Where's My Chips, EV, Oz, and David McGuire for leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks, guys, so much. And uh, to those who have also left the five-star reviews on Spotify, thank you very much. It all helps the podcast be seen and heard by others just like you. We also hit another amazing milestone yesterday with over 6,000 podcasts uh, downloads since uh, I started this in uh, November last year. So... I couldn't be prouder, really excited about where things have uh, got us to today, where it's going, and I've got some really exciting plans coming up for the remainder of the year. And if I can just get the time to do it, then it will all happen, it'll happen a lot sooner. But thank you for your messages, ratings, and support. Keep listening and keep letting me know what you would like to be discussed. Hit me up with an email, info at Trent Robinson Aviation. .com.au. So last episode, I got stuck into part 91, uh, in particular changes for IFR rules, and wow, what a response. Uh, probably my most listened to episode in its first week so far. Granted, uh, since I started, a lot more uh, listeners out there, but it's definitely proven to be a popular topic, which I think really proves that everyone is trying to follow the rules and regs and understand them, but uh, sometimes it's just not that easy. Uh, CASA have made efforts to recognise that regs and legislation are written by lawyers for lawyers and are difficult to read at times. And even just preparing for this episode again, part 91 sections there, so much written in the negative. Uh, you've got to try and flip it around and see, well, if that's what you can't do, what does it mean you actually can do then? Uh, it's not the easiest language, but it is what it is. And uh, they do have the plain English guide and the day VFR guide for VFR pilots, uh, all the examples of efforts being made to try and assist in deciphering all these rules and uh, legislation. Speaking of which, there is a new version of the day VFR guide available online for download, reflecting the December 2 changes. Uh, so if you haven't looked at that before, there's a great interactive website comes in a downloadable format, and if you're a uh, hard copy kind of person, you can now also order your own copy online uh, through the CASA store. I'll put that link in the episode description so you can uh, check that out. All right, so let's have a look at a few more changes to uh, Part 91 in particular, like I said, IFR. And this is, again, no way exhaustive 
of everything you need to know. All right. Now, this one comes up quite often as far as flight test questions go and is a little bit miscommunicated, so I thought I'd point this one out first. And this is Chapter 10, so if you haven't got your Part 91 copy out, uh, grab it so you can read along with me. Again, if you're in the car, wait till you're not driving. And uh, checking pressure altimeter systems, IFR flight. So this isn't changed. Everything here is the same, but I just sort of take the opportunity to just touch on a few uh, things here. So where can we check an IFR altimeter and what are the tolerances? So the pilot command of an IFR flight must consider any pressure altitude system with an error in excess of 75 feet to be an operative. All right, so everybody generally gets that right. They know that's the case. Where it gets into a little bit of an interesting situation is if two pressure altitude systems are required for the category of operation, so generally I'm talking to uh, charter operations or a passenger carrying operations now with the new rules, um, the first altimeter or the primary altimeter must read within 60 feet. I'll generally get an error of within 60 to 75 feet. All right, but the primary altimeter actually has to be less than 60 feet or within 60 feet. The secondary system can have an error of 60 to 75 feet. So just make sure you get that around the right way. Now, this is the pilot command may then conduct a flight to the first point of landing where the accuracy of the second system can be checked. And if on rechecking the second system shows an error in excess of 60 feet, then it's US and we're pretty much stuck where we are. So there's a couple of things to do here. Firstly, where can we check the altimeter? Now, the answer to that is, well, it depends on the kind of aerodrome you're operating at. If it's a basic sort of aerodrome, then the only place that's really got a accurate nominated uh, airfield elevation is the aerodrome reference point. Problem with that is it's probably out in the grass in the middle of the runway somewhere. So it's not really practical to get to. All right. But if you know where you are and it's only a couple of feet, then you're probably going to be okay. But ideally, you want to have a more accurate check than that. So you're looking for something like the runway thresholds. So on the approach plates for the aerodrome diagrams, you will be able to see the runway threshold elevations. Now, there is one little gotcha here, and this is the way the diagrams are drawn. And an example of this is Darwin. And I see this and get this quite often, that the run-up bay in Darwin, or known as the passing bay, you can do an altitude altitude check. Now, for those of you that don't know Darwin, there's a passing bay or the run-up bay on the way out from the GA apron. It's near the fire uh, station and it's on taxiway uh, Zulu there. And you can see just by looking at it that it slopes up quite considerably from the bottom of the passing bay to the top. So very clearly there's already a problem with this theory that you can do an altimeter check. All right, so just off Victor and Zulu is a passing bay, and you'll see if you look up the aerodrome diagram, especially on the DAPS, you'll see that it says LF96, which is elevation 96. Now, this is not the elevation for the passing bay. This is the elevation for the runway threshold for runway 18. 
It's just drawn in a really bad place. Okay, so if that was a passing bay altimeter checkpoint, where's the elevation for runway 18? It's not there. Okay, so when you get these little ideas and things passing around the crew room, have a think about it and put some logic to it. The passing bay is sloped. So where is the altitude checkpoint? It would have to be indicated somewhere if it indeed was checkable there. And secondly, where's runway 18's altitude check? All right, it's not there. It's missing if that's the case. But it isn't. Elevation 96 feet is for the runway 18 threshold. So just make sure you identify exactly where these points are and I'm hoping that will help put that one to bed. All right. Moving on. Chapter 14. So Chapter 14 has uh, a bunch of uh, segments in here. We touched on a little bit of it before with the Q&A sources and things. And moving on from that, we have our instrument approach requirements, Chapter 14.09, and this is moved from the AIP as well. This is where we get our category of aircraft, our category B and uh, well, A, B, and C speeds for the general aircraft we're flying. Okay, nothing's changed, just the location. All right, Chapter 15, IFR takeoff and landing minima. Takeoff minima requirements. Let's just have a look at the wording here. So, again, moved from the AIP into Chapter 15, Section uh, .03, a pilot in command must not commence a takeoff if, at the time of takeoff, the MET conditions are less than the takeoff minimum for the aircraft. Cool. I think everyone's pretty happy with that. And if we read on a little bit, um, 15.06, Section 2 there, reaffirms that our standard takeoff minima are 300 feet and 2,000 metres visibility. We're not talking about qualifying multi-engine aircraft here for now. Item B is the kicker. All right, so MET conditions, so sorry, so Section A, less than the takeoff minima or the MET conditions that would exist if it were necessary to return to land at the departure aerodrome because the engine, because of engine failure are not at or above the landing minima for any approach that the pilot's able to conduct or such as to allow visual approach for the return to land. All right, so... The conditions that would exist if it were necessary to return to land at the departure aerodrome. And this is very much the big question. How do I know if I need to be able to return back to my departure aerodrome? Or do I have the option of continuing and going somewhere else? And that's really going to come down to the type of aircraft you're flying. If it's a relatively low-powered twin or a decent powered twin but just might be loaded to the hilts, then your takeoff performance may be insufficient. And trying to climb up and get out and off to a nearby airport may be just too much of a stretch. So you're going to need to return to where you are. You're going to want to try and do a low-level circuit, come back around or a standard circuit, come back and land. So if that's the case, you're going to have to increase your takeoff minima. So for you, you might need to nominate that as 1,000 feet. You might say, my takeoff minima is lower safe. I might make it lower safe plus 500. That's up to you to the side. But whatever it is, you're the one who's going to be dealing with it and in the hot seat 
flying that airplane. So make sure you are in a position where you can indeed handle that airplane. If you do decide that you're going to go somewhere else, it can't just be I'm going to go to the nearest major airport because it's got an ILS. You've got to make sure that you've taken into account the weather conditions there. If it is so close, then whatever weather conditions you're experiencing, it probably is also not really suitable. So the takeoff alternate needs to be within an hour flight time at one engine operative speed, but it needs to have a forecast uh, that will indicate that a landing is possible all right, somewhere in the next hour. So you're going to have to include tempos, inters, uh, any prevailing weather conditions as well. So don't just go, yeah, we can go because I've got so-and-so airport nearby. You need to look at the full picture. If you can't, it may just be you've got to sit tight and delay your departure for a little while. All right, chapter 19, fuel requirements. So fuel requirements have moved into here now, into legislation. They've got IFR takeoff uh, less than 5,700 kilos, 45-minute fixed reserve. All right, so these are more set in stone now rather than being uh, recommendations in the cap. The other thing it does go into is a mayday situation with regards to impending fuel exhaustion. Uh, so any time the amount of usable fuel remaining in an aircraft uh, that's landing at the nearest aerodrome where safe landing can be made will be or is likely to be less than the final fixed reserve fuel, so less than our 45 minutes, then the pilot is required to declare a emergency fuel situation by broadcasting mayday, mayday, mayday fuel. So a little bit different to what we used to do. It was just a mayday, but now we're actually specifying what the mayday is for. So they know we're not in imminent danger, but it's time to be prioritized and get us on the ground straight away. All right. So do not, uh, A, get yourself in that situation in the first place. But hey, if it happens, swallow your pride, make the call and get yourself on the ground. It will be far less stressful than hoping the hell it all just works out and you get the clearance when you need it. Radio call requirements, Chapter 21. So it's got the radio frequency broadcast and reporting requirements all in there. So if you're an IFR, it will tell you what radio calls are required and to who. Nothing new, uh, but it is just putting it all in a nice little package, a bit easier to read. So again, make sure you take some time and have a read of that section there. I don't really need to go into it. It's fairly self-explanatory, but this is where you're going to find it, Chapter 21. All right, 26 is your equipment listings. So Chapter 26 has all the uh, radios required and instrumentation and everything else. And I just wanted to point out essentially a section that I guess you could almost say it's new, where it's talking about the requirements for what GPS must be fitted in an IFR aircraft. Now, I've been doing tests uh, all throughout Australia and most recently WANT in South Australia and, uh, with COVID permitting. And I'm finding all sorts of GPSs inside aircraft and the students slash pilots aren't 100% sure. So Chapter 26.08 
is specifying what needs to be in an airplane. And it is a little bit complicated because it's not one rule for everything. So we're essentially dealing with older airplanes and newer airplanes. So for anything that is manufactured after the 6th of February 2014, the aircraft needs to have at least one approved GNSS, but not one that is TSO-129. All right, so any new manufactured aircraft must be coming in with the latest technology. It just makes sense. So it needs to be a 145, 146, or uh, 196 or greater. All right, we're obviously going to get new TSO uh, standards in the given uh, years coming. All right, if an aeroplane was manufactured before the 6th of February, uh, if the equipment was installed on or after, at least one, but again, not a TSO-129 unit. All right. So if you are going to put a, a new GPS into an aeroplane, you can replace an existing model with the same thing, but you can't add a new one that is a 129 GPS. It's got to be a 145 or 146. All right. So what about if the GPS was older? So if the GPS equipment was installed before 2014, one GPS uh, can't be a TC-129, or if it is, then it must have an ADF or a VOR as well. Now, this is going to impact on your alternate capabilities, potentially the kind of approaches that you can do and using for your alternates. So if you're not sure about all that, have a look. Um, but... That's the section that's telling you what GPSs you can have in the aircraft. Continuing on from that, it will go into your mandatory instrument requirements and uh, what is needed. So that's where the tables of all that there and a little bit of an explanation, which is quite handy as well. All right, so that's it for this week's episode. Get stuck in those Part 91 regs, have a read, apply it to your scenario and the type of flying you're doing and it will help you a lot there's uh, things that do affect vfr flights such as uh, planning levels we used to be able to plan whatever up to 5,000 feet that's now dropped to 3,000 feet there's all the life jacket requirements life rafts that sort of thing in there and for those that are in the 135 there's some other changes to do with life rafts which i personally don't think have been thought through too well but that's uh, something that everyone's looking at dealing with at the moment. And I'll probably touch base on that in a future episode soon. All right. Thank you, everyone. Please leave some feedback uh, if you're listening out there. If you want to reach me, as always, you can get me on info at trentrobinsonaviation.com.au and send me your questions. Otherwise, you can get me on Facebook or Instagram at Trent Robinson Aviation and search that up and you'll better find me. All right, I've got a couple of interviews coming. Unfortunately, scheduling and work commitments keep coming up and that's aviation, hey? Uh, but they are all going to be happening soon. Really looking forward to bringing those to you. Until then, clear skies and remember the golden rule. Aviate, navigate, communicate. Cheers, guys. <laughs>